thank you for standing for the Word of God. I will read to you from uh, John chapter 5, verse 39. Tonight we're continuing our Basis of Christianity series, part 4. And we're focusing tonight on the Lord Jesus Christ. The lesson that I'm titling tonight is, What the Bible Say? What does the Bible say about Jesus Christ? It's important to know what the Bible says about Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise God. John chapter 5, verse 39. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they, the scriptures, are they which testify of me. Search the scriptures. Search the scriptures, the Bible. For in them you think, you know, you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Plural, not just one scripture, it's many scriptures. Hallelujah. And along with that, to make my case further, is Luke chapter 24, verse 25 through 27. And then we'll jump down to verse 44. And this is after Jesus' resurrection. And you know, it takes place uh, on the road to Emmaus. And two disciples are going home depressed and dejected, discontented. And uh, uh, Jesus comes alongside and he begins to talk to them. And uh, when he hears their story, he says to them in verse 25, he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Everybody say all. That the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Verse 27, and beginning at Moses, meaning the Old Testament law, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, everybody say all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then, as appears to them later on, particularly to the disciple Thomas, is at this point where he came and opened his understanding. But anyway, in verse 44, and he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things, everybody say all things, must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, thus it is written. Everybody say written. The word of God is what Jesus said to the devil. It is written. Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, 
and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And Mark verse 48. And ye are witnesses of these things. He said his disciples were eyewitnesses of the things he expounded to them about the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, and scriptures. How that Jesus is coming, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, all fulfilled the things that were written about him in the scriptures. And he said if we are steadfast and we search the scriptures, then we will see him, we will know about him because these scriptures testify of him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word that you have given us. Thank you, Lord God, that you have opened our eyes, our hearts, our understanding, that we may know you better, Lord. I, we pray that while we spend these few minutes together, that you would lead us and guide us in the straight and narrow. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, as the youth are dismissed into youth class, everybody say amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Now, this particular lesson tonight, again, will examine the person of Jesus Christ, who is the reason and the basis, the foundation of our faith. Can you say amen? amen. Now, there are many theories and many ideas out in the world about Jesus. They hear the name, but most of them only use it as a curse word. They blaspheme the name of the Lord. But some would say that he was just an important Jewish rabbi in times past. Some said that he's some kind of a prophet. Some even said that he's a ghost or a spirit. Some even have had the goal to say that he was some alien being, that he came from an advanced future civilization and, uh, and try to make a story. But you know, the Bible says in the last days, perilous times should come. The Bible says that people will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn themselves to, to teachers having itching ears. And they'll believe fables, the Bible. They, people today would much rather believe Marvel comic book stories on, on movies and movies than they would the Bible about Jesus. And that's a sad thing. And a sad commentary on our 21st century society who purports itself to be so smart. And we are a smart generation. My goodness, you look at the, the conveniences, or should I say inconveniences, uh, amen, about the smartphones and the tablets and the rocket ships and, and you know, the, 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 the satellites that we're sending up and, and the, uh, the new telescope, $10 billion to see into the depths of outer space to see when the universe was born. And yet they come up with such a silly statement as Jesus being a ghost or he's maybe an alien. But who can blame them? When your mind is darkened because of ignorance and because of sin, you're liable to think and do anything. But for us Christians, our greatest source of information comes from the Bible. His life, his ministry, his teaching. All of it is found right here in the Bible. 
It's the best way to discover who Jesus is. Because only this Bible contains the eyewitness accounts, as even Jesus himself said. He said, that ye are my witnesses. I showed you how I fulfilled Scripture all through the book. But now you are my eyewitnesses that this is true. And how best to appropriate this then from the mouth of these witnesses and from their writings, their testimonies about what they heard, what they saw, what they recorded, and what they preserved about the life of Jesus and his ministry. And we'll find as we do search the scriptures that really the Bible's central theme is Jesus. The Bible is all about Jesus. Hallelujah. And so this is why we emphasize this lesson tonight. Amen. So he's the main uh, point of all the books of the Bible, and you heard his own, uh, own words, Jesus, from Moses to the prophets to the Psalms. And just about anywhere you look in this book, you can find something about God, about Jesus and the revelation of himself and his ministry and, and the future uh, uh, concerning him. And uh, we'll see that, that uh, the Bible is a progressive revelation of God and the name of God. And it's not all at once. It's just one story after another. It's, it's one event after another. It's one revelation after another. And each building upon the previous revelation. And as you look at the Old Testament in general, we, last week, as you know, I talked about uh, the Bible and how we got the book and, and, uh, and how it, it is organized and how it's divided and, and how we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, and as we look at the Old Testament in particular uh, and we look for Jesus, we, we see, yes, it, it does contain creation. It has the best narrative of the history of mankind and the history of the world, how God prepared for his own coming by preparing a world, a world that would accommodate his body, amen, that he created uh, on image of himself that he would occupy in the form of Jesus Christ later on, amen. When I'm saying God, meaning the spirit, hallelujah, and Jesus, the human manifestation of himself. But uh, the Old Testament contains all these events that set the human and historical stage for the coming or the manifestation of Jesus, the Christ, the, this God manifest in the flesh. Hallelujah. Is it mine or is it yours? Hallelujah. <laughs> Mine's all silent. Ooh, hallelujah. I'm a good boy. <laughs> well, hallelujah. Jesus on the main line, tell him what you want. Oh, Jesus on the main line, tell him what you want. Mm. Thank you, Jesus. Well, I got one song in anyway. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise God. And so, really, the Old Testament shows us how God set the stage historically, culturally, every which way, so that he would manifest himself at the right time. So in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, at the right time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. At the right time, God knew exactly when to come and when to enact his plan and initiate it. Amen. And it tells this story through the eyes of prophets and, and leaders and kings and various other spiritual leaders of the Old Testament. And we find in this Old Testament that in the beginning, as you know, people knew very little about him. 
And it's, it's, it's whatever God revealed himself uh, in. And, and think about it. If you're back in, in Adam's day, let's say you were children of Adam, what would you know about God? Or even every successive generation for the next 2,000 years, how much information would you, cons- would you know about God? In fact, the first six chapters of Genesis is up to the, 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 the life of, jo- of uh, Noah. How much did Noah know about God? How much did people know about God up to that point? Very little. But you see, as you progress through time, uh, God has given quite a bit of information about himself. And yet we find that in the Old Testament, God progressively revealed more and more about himself as various needs arose in the lives of certain people, particularly his own people. And then he expressed himself in a revelation through a certain name that he used. When Abraham, for example, needed a lamb when he was called upon to sacrifice Isaac, his son, uh, and, and uh, he didn't know what's going to happen, Isaac asked a question, Dad, here's the wood, here's the, here's the fire, here's the knife, here's everything we got, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, son, God him will provide himself a sacrifice. And that's exactly the way it happened. Because when they went up to Mount Moriah, you know, that Abraham was ready to kill Isaac. But in the last second before he drew that knife down, God spoke to him in that that voice and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, don't touch the lamb. For now I know that you have not withheld your son, your only son, whom thou lovest. In other words, I see that you love me more than you love him. But by faith, Paul tells the New Testament that Abraham knew that God could raise him from the dead because he promised him as an heir and and as a seed from his own loins. Praise God. But at that point when Abraham sacrificed Isaac and then God provided that lamb instead, God revealed himself to Abraham as Jehovah Jireh. And that's why Abraham called that place Jehovah Jireh, meaning Lord Jehovah, which is the saving name of God, the redemptive name of God. It's Jehovah Jireh who sees and provides. He saw my need, and he provided what I needed. And all of a sudden, we got a name for God that that reveals something about what he can do and who he is. He's a provider for his people. Amen. And then later on, when his people Israel needed protection from sickness and disease, then God revealed himself to them as Jehovah Rapha. I'm the Lord God, thy healer. And that was added to the repertoire. People... All right, he's, he's not only Jehovah Jireh, he's not only just Jehovah, the, the, the one who redeems and who gives us victory and deliverance, but he's also a God who heals us uh, of our diseases. And then when his people needed victory, the Bible says God revealed himself, this people is Jehovah Nissi, meaning your banner, a flag, a banner you can lift, amen, against the enemy, and when you fight under my flag, under my banner, I will give you the victory. I'm a victorious God. Hallelujah. So his people learned that God is not only a healer, a provider, a deliverer, a savior. He's also the one who gives you the victory when you need it. Hallelujah. And all these names reveal, these titles too, some important aspect about the nature and attributes of God. And many people in the Old Testament desire to know more of God and and express their desire so. All you got to do is read Jacob and his encounter with the angel of the Lord at Mount Peniel at, at uh, uh, Genesis chapter 20, uh, 32. 
And uh, he's there wrestling with the angel all night long, as you recall, and his, his day's breaking. And, and, uh, and the angel of the Lord, uh, you know, didn't, uh, didn't hurt Jacob, really. I mean, he could have killed him. But the angel of the Lord wanted Jacob to wrestle with him, as you know. The bottom line is, all night long, that wrestling match took place because God wanted Jacob to see himself and confess what he really is. He wanted him to confess his shortcomings. And first, the angel asked him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. That's right. You're a liar, a thief, and you're, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're one, a supplanter who, who trips up. But it's no longer going to be that. I'm going to change you. Your name is going to be Israel. For you have striven, you have power with God, and you have prevailed. And so there, Jacob names that mountain, Mount Peniel, meaning I have seen the face of God and lived. I have seen the face of God, Peniel, the face of God. And so, which really wasn't the face, literally just goes to me, as you know, it was the shape, and it was the shadow, the shadow, kind of an experience. But God just revealed some more about himself, that his people didn't know before, that even Abraham didn't know before. It just keeps piling up and adding on to the list. Manoah, the father of Samson, asked uh, the, the, the question from the angel of the Lord when he came to give him a word of prophecy about the coming of Samson and his birth. And he said, what is thy name? And the angel of the Lord said, why askest thou after my name, seeing it is secret? Judges 13, 18. It's a secret. Why are you asking me for that name? But do you see the, 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 the pattern here? Jacob, what is your name? The angel said, what is your name? <laughs> Hallelujah. But here Manoah, Samson's father, what is thy name? He says, why do you ask after my name? And God wouldn't give it. You're not at that point. But at that point, hallelujah, uh, the, the, the name of, uh, of Jehovah is also uh, expressed in a different way. Then Zechariah, we're told, in Zechariah 14.9, prophesied that there will be a time, though, that the fullness of that, that name of God will be revealed and everyone will know it. It will not be a contraction of one name or another and many different things, but it says, in that day, there shall be one Lord and his name shall be one. One. And that really came after Jesus was born. That one name, Jesus. That's the name that this Bible reveals. Galatians 4, 4, I recorded to you. Amen. He said, when the fullness of time was come, praise God. God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. And his name was Jesus. God revealed himself to, in all his power and his glory through the name of Jesus. And the, as you know, the name Jesus is a Greek equivalent. Uh, of, of that name, Yahshua, which is Jehovah's salvation, Yahashua. Uh, and uh, in Hebrew, Christ is, uh, uh, is Messiah, one and the same. But Jesus, Yeshua, is the derivative of Yahashua, and uh, it means Jehovah's Savior, or Jehovah is salvation. This is why the angel speaking to Joseph, you know, Mary's husband, and she was with child, and uh, he was wondering what to do with her because he didn't really know how she got expectant. And, of course, the angel came and explained to him. And uh, the Bible says uh, that in Matthew 1, 21, uh, the angel of the Lord said to Joseph, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, or Yahashua, 
for he shall save his people from their sins. And at that point, God's redemptive name becomes a reality. Not just a name, but a person. Jesus is born in human form that will actually live up to the meaning of his name. And he does that when his life is crucified, his life's blood is shed on the cross, and then he's risen from the dead and forever to live as a resurrected, glorified body, the firstborn of all dead. Amen. But that's what the, the Old Testament brings us to. And I mention Old Testament because Matthew is really still written under the Old Testament. The New Testament technically does not begin until the day of Pentecost. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, although we include those books in the New Testament, it is describing to us how the New Testament really came to be, how Jesus established it. But the actual enactment, the actual, uh, how should I say, the official beginning or coming to life of that New Testament is not until Jesus died. And again, many times I liken this to the new, I mean, to a will. Uh, testament is the same thing as a will. And we more often are familiar with wills rather than testaments. If, uh, if you have a will and a testament, over here, I think legal term, they call it a last will and testament. A last will and testament that, uh, that you want certain things carried out in your family once you pass and you die. Uh, and that will uh, will be carried out by an executor and uh, it will be done according to your wishes. And this is why the testament, Jesus' last will and testament, is written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But you see, as with all wills, when you write a will, it's not in force until you die. Right? That's why in the New Testament, Matthew, Matthew Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is still alive until we see the crucifixion. And the benefits of that crucifixion is not appropriated until the day of Pentecost. When those who believe on Christ, amen, in their faith, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, they're baptized in Jesus' name, and, uh, and they can appropriate the benefits of the death, burial, and resurrection. But before Jesus died and was buried and resurrected, there was no benefit in baptism. There was no baptism in Jesus' name because the new will was not enacted yet. It was not in force. And so this is why I mentioned that the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Tom, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those books of the Gospels are really under the Old Testament. And it's not until Acts chapter 2 that the New Testament church age begins. And that's a very important demarcation point that you have to remember. Uh, it, it solves a lot of confusion about in the Gospels why Jesus didn't, you know, baptize anybody in his name or his apostles for that matter. For one thing, it wasn't until Jesus rose from the dead, as we read in Luke 24, that they understood the Scriptures. Then opening you their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. How could Jesus have a church when he had this apostle who didn't even know what the Scriptures said? How it applied to him? And uh, it wasn't until Jesus died, was buried, rose again, that they could invoke again the power of his last will and testament. And so this is why it's still under the Old Testament. This is why uh, some of the people who died in the Gospel of Luke uh, and, uh, and were, uh, were righteous, they were not righteous by the New Testament standards, but under the Old Testament standards. For example, again, one of the most, uh, most popular questions in, 
and examples is uh, the thief on the cross. We always talk about that. Jesus was crucified under the law of Moses, and there's no, no New Testament salvation plan enacted yet. There's no death-bearing resurrection of Jesus yet, but he's on the cross with two thieves, and one repents. And Jesus tells him, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise, right? And uh, how could that be? He didn't get off the cross and repent and get baptized in Jesus' name and get the Holy Ghost. Well, he didn't need to because the New Testament church was not born yet. And the message of the New Testament church was not begun yet. It was not in force. Is that clear? Is that easy to understand? Praise God. Amen. So Jesus, when we look at the name of Jesus, Again, uh, it's the redemptive name of Jesus of God. It is, it is the name through which God revealed himself in all of his power and all of his glory, all of his majesty, and that's why that name is so important. And uh, it, it's, it's the culmination of all of the Old Testament names. It's, it's, it's everything together, everything that he revealed himself in the Old Testament in part becomes whole in the name of Jesus. That's why the name of Jesus is the most powerful name that you can invoke in prayer and anything that you do. No wonder the scripture says, Colossians 3, says, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord. Why? Because that is the most powerful name ever revealed to mankind, and that is the name, hallelujah, in, in which all power and authority is under in, under, in heaven and in earth. And that's why we baptize in that name. That's why we lay hands on the sick in that name. Because it's the highest and most exalted name. In fact, it tells us in Philippians, amen, that at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, the invisible spirit. Amen. And this is why the New Testament church that you and I are part of uh, are identified by the name of Jesus. We're Jesus people. We're Jesus' name church. Hallelujah. And this is why Jesus said that we would be hated among all nations, and all people for his name's sake. <laughs> it's still true. Hallelujah. So uh, the Old Testament, how we got here and all the prophecies and the, the revelation, should we say self-revelation of God, made manifest in them through prophets and kings and priests and, and a, a variety of people. But God progressively revealed his name until he came in human form and revealed his name that is higher than any other. Praise the name of the Lord. No wonder Peter was able to tell to the Jewish priests and the Sanhedrin, neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I'm glad I know that name. Yeah. Hallelujah. Men, you have the four Gospels I mentioned, and the Gospels are important to talk a whole about Jesus. They're eyewitness accounts of his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven, all witnessed. In fact, his ascension, over 500 people saw it. And this book is a testimonial of all those events from eyewitnesses. Amen. And I don't have time to, we don't have time to go through all the eyewitness accounts. We're not, but we're just going to look at a few. But the, the rest of the New Testament uh, after the Gospels uh, is written by apostles and other disciples. Uh, 
uh, showing how the early church and the followers of Jesus Christ established the church uh, according to his instructions, according to his commandments. And uh, then uh, as we look into the, the Old and New Testament, we can, uh, we can see just about, uh, find out just about anything about Jesus, about his coming, uh, what are the circumstances concerning his, his second coming and his appearance in the eastern sky, his promises and many, many things, death, bearing, resurrection, and so on. Praise God. But the people who knew him personally and who spread his teachings throughout the world have written their testimonials in here. Much of it Paul did, as you know, 14, well, I would say 14, some say 13, that's debatable. But he wrote a considerable portion of the New Testament. Uh, but they dealt quite a bit with who is Jesus, and their writings tell us quite a bit about who Jesus is. Amen. And again, we're talking about what the Bible says, not about what some movie said about it. It's not about, about how we feel about Jesus. It's not about some historical book. We're talking about the Bible, the Bible, the Word of God. Amen. And so these are the most direct and eyewitness accounts of him uh, in the New Testament, and that's why we're looking at that. Now, there's thousands of people that heard of Jesus and knew that he was a historical figure. Uh, they saw him, they heard him speak and teach and even do miracles. And there's no doubt of his existence because there are too many other records outside of the, the Bible referencing him. One is Josephus, Josephus Flavius. I got his book, I had this for many years, very interesting history book. Uh, it's interesting, now mind you, he's a Jewish person, but he was not a Christian. He was not a follower of Christianity, he was not a follower of Jesus Christ. But he was a very good historian in the first century uh, uh, in the time of, of the life of Christ. In fact, uh, in, in the inner flap it says this about him. Josephus, the Jewish historian, was born in A.D. 37 of a priestly Jewish family. He was well-educated and followed the, the Pharisaic form of Judaism. In other words, he was a Pharisee. In, age, in A.D. 64, he visited Rome as a member of a Jewish embassy. Although Josephus claimed to have advised against armed revolt against the Romans during the Jewish revolt from A.D. 66 to 70, he commanded a Jewish force in Galilee with some success. Besieged at Jodapata, he was captured by the Romans and then devoted his energies to helping the Romans and trying to persuade the remaining Jews to come to terms. After the end of the Jewish revolt, he went to Rome with Titus, and uh, Titus, that general that leveled Jerusalem to the ground and burned it and dispersed all the nation of Israel, all the parts of the Roman Empire, killed a third of the Jews, enslaved another third, another third. He sent throughout the, throughout the world. And that's how the Jewish, that's what the Jews today call the diaspora. The Jewish diaspora is the, is the spreading forth like seed from that shoot spread throughout the world. And that's really what the Jewish diaspora is all about. That's when it began. It's 87. And this guy went with that general, Titus of Rome, and lived there until his death about A.D. 100. Josephus became a close friend of the emperors Vespasian and Titus and took their family name, Flavius. Josephus did all his writing at Rome. His works included the Jewish wars, the antiquities of the Jews, which tells the story of the Jews from creation to the fall of Masada, and again against uh, Apion, which defended Jews against pagan slanders and, and a short autobiography. Amen. And uh, 
Hallelujah. Apart from, let me see, Josephus wrote both to justify his own conduct and to commend what was most attractive in Judaism to the Romans. He condemned the zealots uh, vitriolically and praised his patrons Vespasian and Titus in glowing terms. Apart from this, Josephus gives much extremely valuable information about the period from the Maccabean Revolt onwards. It's about, about 160 years before Christ, all the way up to the period of Christ. The Maccabeans were a, a priesthood family that read, led many revolts in between the Bible, between the Old and the New Testament. That's the 400 years of, of prophetic silence, which also included the Maccabean years, where the Jews rebelled time and again uh, against Greece, Greek and their leaders, and then Rome, and so on. In any case, when Rome became the, uh, the main uh, world power, uh, the Jews under the Maccabeans revolted to them too. But it says, we depend on Josephus for most of our knowledge of the New Testament background. He has short, specific references to Jesus, John the Baptist, and James, the brother of Jesus. Josephus is a rather wordy writer. In other words, he's long-winded, but generally reliable. That's his book, all his writings in one book. Many Bible scholars, people who are interested in gaining an understanding of the, of the cultural and political background at the time that the Bible was written, particularly the New Testament. Talk about the New Testament. It gives you great insight. And again, as a historian who has nothing to do with Christianity in, in, in a real sense, he wasn't aborting a believer. He has a lot to say about Christianity and John the Baptist as well and others. So we're not... I'm not using him right now. I'm making a point with this book that there are historians besides him that have recorded the existence of Jesus at that specific time, which we know from the Bible, from other disciples and apostles uh, who lived and he died and he rose again and he's still alive. So he's a real being. I mean, th th this actually undergirds our faith. Amen. And uh, it's good. In fact, it's good information to use when you're witnessing to somebody. Who knows? You might be able to refer, make this reference sometime to them. Amen. But many people saw him. And so the history of the Bible, uh, history in general, not the Bible, uh, writes that Jesus was a Jewish man, born in a humble family, lived in Israel about 2,000 years ago, began, began his ministry claiming he was the Messiah, and he went about doing good, but then in the end, he was arrested and executed uh, by the Roman government uh, at, of course, the urging also of the Jewish uh, ecclesiastical religious leaders because his teaching caused a lot of upheavals in society, and thus he was executed by crucifixion. Amen. Now, that's what history books talk about. But I want to take a few minutes yet and talk, focus on what the apostles wrote because there were others who were eyewitnesses. Uh, and followed Jesus, and, and they followed him three, three and a half years, and uh, were with him day in and day out, night after night, day after day, from one event to another. And they heard him, and they were with him. And more than anyone is these eyewitnesses that have a lot to say. Now, we're going to look at just a few of the testimonies of these apostles, and I take three or four. Uh, it's interesting, the Bible tells us, uh, in six different scriptures in Old and New Testament. In fact, three verses of scripture in the Old Testament and three in the New Testament that out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word or every matter be established or be, be, be examined so that there's no misunderstanding. In fact, on the, on the capital punishment, as you know, 
uh, one of the first things Moses mentions and gives a command for in Deuteronomy 17.6. You can't execute anyone if they've done a capital crime if there's only one witness. You got to have two witnesses, minimum two witnesses. So when it comes to Scripture too, that's also kind of a standard we use for, for, for judging uh, a Scripture or Scriptures where we want to establish a doctrine. There has to be at least two verses, to some, two scriptures, two things from the Bible that, that verify and affirm that thought or that doctrine, okay? Uh, but anyway, so this is why we have more than one witness. I mean, we've heard Jesus' own words in, uh, in Luke chapter 24, verse 48. And ye are witnesses of these things. He hath 12, but not all 12 of them wrote, mind you. Matthew. Mark, Mark wasn't an apostle, but Mark wrote, uh, and he was uh, uh, somebody under, under Peter and, and then under Paul for a while. And so he was one of the, the people that was under an apostle. We talked about that too, about how we got a Bible, that people who were companions and, and disciples of apostles were automatically recognized in their writings, were trusted because of who they got their information from. Mark is one of those individuals, the first gospel that was written. So Matthew, and there's John, and there's Luke, uh, and uh, there's Paul, Peter, uh, Jude. But anyway, we're going to use just uh, three or four uh, witnesses. I'm going to use Peter first. Peter is the first witness. I imagine this, you know, if you were in a court of law, and you're here in a case against somebody, you know, uh, did Jesus live, or, or, or was he a real person? And what did he do? Well, you know, if you're in a court and you're on the witness stand, you're listening to them being asked the questions, you know, how do you know that Jesus is real? And so here what we're going to do is read a few substantiating points from their own writings affirming of what they heard, saw, and experienced relative to Jesus. Now, Peter was a fisherman by trade. He was actually one of the first apostles to be called along with his brother Andrew. He had a family business. He was a fisherman, right? And uh, he was the first apostle to follow Jesus full time, if you please. He heard all of Jesus' teachings and witnessed his miracles. And later on, he became a leader. Of course, the ones to whom Jesus gave the keys to the kingdom. And uh, we see that being used on the day of Pentecost and in Samaria and also with Cornelius and the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And uh, finally, he died as a martyr, uh, gave his life for the gospel. But during his ministry, Jesus' ministry, Jesus asked his apostles, including Peter, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And of course, several of the apostles said certain things. Peter was the one that answered without hesitation, you are the Messiah. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so the Bible said that even while Jesus was alive, Peter believed and declared that this Jesus was the Messiah. Witness number one. In Acts chapter 3, verse 14, uh, you see what, uh, what he said even to the Jewish people. He says, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. Peter said that. Acts chapter 3, after the healing of that man, uh, amen, that was lame on his feet in uh, the street called straight, hallelujah, the gate called beautiful. 
Amen. They arrested him, took him into prison overnight, and the next day they took him into the Sanhedrin chapter 4 and had further in, interrogated them. But he told them, Amen, we are witnesses of these things. Hallelujah. Now, there's a lot more written in, by Peter uh, in the New Testament. He wrote two epistles. Um, but these are just two of the passages that we uh, use to, to, as, as testimony of what Peter said about Jesus. In Matthew 16, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. Jesus didn't refute it. In fact, Jesus affirms it. And we'll get to that in just a moment. In Acts chapter 3, he tells them we're witnesses of who this Jesus Christ was and is. Praise God. So uh, we see that uh, Peter confirmed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, God coming in flesh, and he was convinced of that based on what he saw and what he saw Jesus do and what he heard in his teachings. Amen. And Peter never, ever changed his testimony throughout his life. Certainly not the written record, and there are no witnesses to, 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 to ever hear that he, he denied this or changed his mind. And mind you, he survived Paul's persecution and many others. And the apostles stayed in Jerusalem during that time. He never recanted. He never said, you know, this is too risky. He ran once, but he didn't ever run again, even if, when it cost him his life, and it did. Praise the Lord. So when we want to know who Jesus is, the Bible, through Peter's own words, one of the testimonies, one of the witnesses. Amen. We see just exactly uh, who Jesus is. Now, the second witness is Thomas. Thomas was the one who uh, was an apostle of Jesus, but he was the one that wasn't uh, uh, there when Jesus rose from the dead and revealed himself to uh, some of his disciples and his apostles. And he said that he would not uh, believe that Jesus rose from the dead until he saw it with his own eyes and he put his own hands into his wounds, amen, and, uh, and, and then he was convinced. Now, we know that Thomas was, uh, uh, was an apostle and uh, we knew that, that he also saw his miracles. He was convinced that Jesus was dead. In fact, that's why he had trouble believing that he was alive. And when the other apostles reported that they'd seen Jesus resurrected, well, said, uh-uh, I, I refuse to believe. And so in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 24, we read, But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them, Jesus came. The doors having been shut, and stood in their midst, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here, reach here with your finger, see my hands, and reach here your hand, and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Hallelujah. Now, there's several things we see from this confession of Thomas. Number one, we see that Thomas actually believed now that Jesus was risen from the dead. He didn't believe that before. 
But after Jesus appeared to him, he believed that Jesus indeed is risen from the dead. Now, that's important because, you see, there's a lot of folks that don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And a lot of people are in, the, are in Thomas's boat before they, he saw that they would say, you know what, if he just give me a sign, if he just show me. You know? And when he showed Thomas, he did because he was a specially chosen apostle. He was one of the witnesses he chose. Some of the things that Jesus showed to his apostles showed only to them and not to anybody else. Why? Because he chose select witnesses. And that's what Thomas was. So he showed him. He tolerated his skepticism, his unbelief, because God had a plan. He already invested three and a half years of his time with him. And so Thomas finally did believe. He says, wow. I, 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 you're right. You're risen. My Lord and my God. And the second thing we see is that Thomas acknowledges that Jesus is God. Not only that he's risen, but he's God. And he had all authority over him. That's other observation. Calling Jesus Lord. Lord. You're not just a, a, a rabbi. You're not just another prophet. You're my Lord. Yahweh. Jehovah. Jehovah's salvation. It also shows us that through Thomas's behavior that Jesus is not only worthy believing in, but also worthy in worship. That Jesus is worthy of our worship, exactly as he did. And the Bible says he worshiped him, my Lord and my God, hallelujah. And so, once again, from another testimony, from another witness, we see that uh, where the Bible puts forth some facts about Jesus that he's divine. And that uh, he is the object of our faith. He is to be worshipped. And indeed, he is the Lord over us. Paul is the third witness. And uh, he is uh, perhaps like none other. Articulates in more detail the character of the person of Jesus Christ than anybody else. And when you read his own testimony from Acts chapter 22 verse 1 through 16. Uh, of who he was. What his, his background was. And how Jesus revealed himself to him personally. Um, and I just read the last several verses of his testimony from Acts 22, verse 1 through 16. I'll begin with just verse 12 to save time. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked at, up at him and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay or tarry, as the King James says? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. King James calling on the name of the Lord. Paul's own testimony. And the words from Jesus to Ananias confirming Paul's call to be a special vessel says, you're going to be my special witness and testify of all the things that you have heard and seen. And remember, this is what changed Paul from a persecutor uh, who hated Christianity with a passion until his conversion in such a miraculous way. And thus begin not only his conversion, but also one of the most 
prolific writers and evangelists of the, of the New Testament age. I mean, half the New Testament is written by him. And his testimony is found uh, in our, the pages of our Bible. And so from adversary to saint, what a great thing he did. In Colossians 1, 15 and 8 through 18, he uh, gives us a great exposition on the insights about God. Listen to this. Speaking of Jesus, that's what we're talking about. The Bible revealed Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And Jesus says the invisible spirit, it's a spirit that holds everything together. In here we live and move and have our being. He said at another place in the book of Acts. But if he could just see his spirit, it's through everything and anything. From here all the way through the entire universe. And his spirit is what keeps things together. Gravity, the earth spinning on its axis, the sun burning as it is. Everything that you see, the air that we breathe, the atmosphere that stays in place and doesn't evaporate out into outer space, and, and just, just the ongoing process of a spring and winter and fall and summer, and that all those things still continue from the time that he created things, and it's all held up and held together by his present spirit, meaning his spirit is present. And so from all these things that Paul writes, and we, we see a visible image of God, that Jesus is the, is the image, the only image of the invisible God. We see that, that he was even there before creation, that he's supreme over all creation, that he's the father of all creation, that he's eternal. He'll never change. And he's the head of the church, this very Jesus, this eternal God is the head of the church. And by saying He's before all things, and in him all things know together. He said, the firstborn from the dead. He's before all things. He's basically saying that he leads all those who are to be resurrected. He's the forefront. He was the very first one to be born from the grave, and death, burying, and he's risen now, and he's alive, and we follow after him. His church will follow the same footsteps and the same process. I'm looking forward to it, aren't you? Yes. Praise the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Now, we talked about Peter and Paul and Thomas, and there's a couple others. Uh, in fact, uh, the Samaritan woman that Jesus talked to, and Jesus himself, his testimony. There's several things, that three things that Jesus said uh, to different people. The Samaritan woman was one. John 4, 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When one, that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Hallelujah. I that speak unto thee am he. Jesus said from his own mouth who he is. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. It's not just what Peter said, not what Thomas said, my Lord and my God. It's not just what we read about in Luke. It's Jesus said with his own words, I am he, the Christ. And then Jesus reveals himself as the Savior to the Jews. Peter the Apostle, he says, we've looked, hallelujah, somebody say praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 
Matthew 16, uh, 15 through 17. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Again, when Jesus asked that question, who do people say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. Hallelujah. Now, at first we focused on what Peter said, that thou art the Christ. At this particular scripture, I read again because here we're focusing on what Jesus said. Jesus affirmed what Peter said, and what Peter said and confessed was correct, and that it was a spiritual revelation. In fact, Jesus goes on to say that upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, on this revelation you just had, Peter, of who I am is what I'm going to build my church on. It's the revelation of the mighty God in Christ is who I am, and upon this my church will be built. And then... We see what he said to his own apostles, Matthew 28, 18 through 19. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go ye therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age or end of the world. Hallelujah. Praise God. In this particular segment, Jesus claims exclusive divine authority over all. What he's stating here is from his own mouth. All power in heaven and earth is mine. That's what Jesus in the Bible says about himself. And the question is, do we believe it? We should believe it. Do we have a revelation of it? Do we understand who he is? And again, I'm only covering a few things. This is, this is inexhaustible subject, right? But when we look at this particular passage, we can see from all these testimonies, not just what Jesus said, but the apostles as well, that he was a true historical figure, but much more than that. He was indeed the Jewish Messiah. He was the Son of God. He is the Lord God himself, resurrected from the dead. He is an eternal being. He's the Father of creation. He's the head of the church. The supreme authority in heaven and on earth. Supreme, all power is mine in heaven and earth. Stand with me if you would. We could say more, but finally, brethren, hallelujah. I'm going to close tonight with the scripture from John. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He said, therefore, and this is really important. Mark this down. Think about it. Really. Don't miss this. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. This is John one of the eyewitnesses. This is one of the three closest witnesses. He's the one that had his head on his bosom. Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book or this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of God, 
and that believing you may have life in his name. Thank God for the Bible. Thank God for the scriptures, which we can search and see that Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is the Lord God. He is above all principality and power. All authority comes from him. And one day he will reclaim it and put it all under his feet. John finally closes his gospel in John 21, 25, and he said this, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Aren't you glad? Because we'd be here for weeks reading it. Hallelujah. Praise God. I'm glad I know who Jesus is. I'm glad I know what this Bible's about. I'm glad God produced it for us. I'm glad God provided this for us. And that when we read it and we search in it, we can find him who is the author. The author of our salvation, the author of our faith. We can find him and know more about our healer, our redeemer, our savior. Praise God, our provider. Everything that we need, we can find about God in here. The book. What the Bible says about Jesus. I'm ready. Where's JL? Come on. I'm getting ready.